This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about technology as a factor in mental health with Dr. Julie Ansess. And before we get into talking about our wonderful guest, we've got a few statistics and the first are from her in an article she wrote for Psychology Today. It highlighted that in the pandemic, total internet hits have surged by up to 70% and streaming has jumped by at least 30% worldwide. So not only is this such an important factor in mental health generally, but it's so acute right now that I'm really glad we're covering it. And we're covering it at a time when we're recording it in a second lockdown, in a time when we have this additional reliance on the internet. And so it can be really difficult to examine our relationship with technology and how appropriate that is. At the same time, we're so reliant on it. Mm. And that was something that, that very much comes through in the interview. And one more stat for us to highlight was reported via the BBC in terms of a study in 2014 by German academics that showed delays on phone conferencing systems shaped our views of people negatively. Even delays of 1.2 seconds made people perceive the responder as less friendly or focused. Wow. It's mad, but you think about it, and actually I can see it because I've been on the other side of a Zoom call or someone's having real phone connection issues and you do have to stop yourself judging them. You you can start to think, oh, they seem a bit disorganised, <laughs> even though it's not necessarily something they have any control over. Yeah, and, and like that talks about like the, the connection, like friendliness, how, how cues in communication is so much more than just verbal. So all those non-verbal cues that we just miss via this video conferencing, Zoom, they're calling it Zoom fatigue aren't they? It's like got its own name now. Because not only, I mean, I know I'm biased because the training that I deliver and the work that I do, I reckon is good. So everybody's (laughs) kind of connected and engaged. But even for me, I can have four, five, six meetings. I'm not traveling anywhere. When you're delivering to a large group of people, say in in work, you know, you're waiting for people to, I can't see if somebody's about to talk and then somebody interrupts them. I can't really see those non-verbal cues that mean a lot to me in, in, in the work that I'm delivering to kind of get how people might be feeling or what they're thinking, how comfortable they are. So everybody just becomes the same. Mm. And then there's, like you said, there's this pause, you ask a question and you're waiting, <laughs> waiting for an answer. Who might answer first? Oh, sorry, were you about to say something, Julie? Oh, oh I, no, I hate that. I, I oh. know. And it's, this, it's so awkward and so less personable. It's just really difficult. And there's that. But then imagine when all these, all the online work that's been done during lockdown with people that just have kind of jobs that they just don't really like and it's all now gone online. Like, you're so bored. People are distracted. You're in the house. It's just boring. People who aren't sending emails while they're meant to be on it. They're doing something else. They're looking after the kids. So the levels of productivity, although at first may have seemed to be increasing because people are at home, they're focused all day. They're not just rapidly decreasing. Yeah. No, I really thought about that early in the pandemic. If you were struggling to motivate yourself at work before... (laughs) And and all sorts of, you know, and some of the behaviour, the kind of 
innovation of how we use tech is quite funny. I'm not going to name names, but I've got quite a few friends that have become very good at scrolling through their phone whilst on a work Zoom call. Like they'll just put it in front of the screen yeah. and then it, they you can't see that they're doing that with their arm. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like they're looking down the camera. It's quite innovative, sort it, of naughty. Yeah, but quite innovative. But, but this is the thing and it, it makes such a difference. We can kind of take it for granted in person. But imagine if every time you finish speaking, I waited a few seconds, you probably just start speaking again. Yeah. You just assume I've got nothing to say and yet on a Zoom call we're sat there and, and I think that's a big part of why it's so draining because you're having to try and figure all this out and you're also trying to look engaged. You know, when in a normal conversation do you sit there and think, oh, I hope I'm looking engaged? But somehow when it's through yeah. technology... Is my background okay? Has somebody just come in? Oh, somebody just pulled... Like, what exactly? There's so much more going on in your brain than being connected in that moment but not necessarily in a positive way not necessarily in a communication and connectivity way just in a distracting way and managing all of that while trying to have this zoom call is really draining you know and, and, and the stats are showing how draining that can be and I just think that also even you know on a personal level facetiming and it's just you know what, Bobby, it's amazing that we've got it because it's it's kept education, economy, sport, technology has enabled us to survive, maybe not thrive, but survive during this pandemic and beyond, you know, before the pandemic. So, and, and again, when we talk about social media, so much, so much negativity surrounds that specific type of technology and, and, and like digital medium. And, and it's all amazing, but it's now coming down to how we're using it. You know, and the fact that I can be on my settee and I'm looking at any moment when something's on the telly or I don't know what that is or what's her name. I can just pick up my phone or just Google that. Who's that? What was she? Oh, look at that photo. Oh, that's him. Oh, constantly. My daughter asked me a question. I'll just Google it. And all the time, my phone's just there in my hand, ready for it's information. so normalised. And actually, that kind of links to another of our statistics because I find that as a real generational gap. You know, if I think of watching telly with my parents... Yeah. They'll say, who's that actor? You know, what do I know them from? And they'll discuss it between themselves and figure it out. Whereas I will already have got the answer up on my phone. Yeah. And that on one hand is really incredible, but we've also got to be conscious of maybe the fallout from that. And another bit of information we have from a psychologist, Doreen Dodgen McGee, uh, she wrote an article where she talks about at a very fundamental level, we expect less of our brains now. Because we have so much at our fingertips, we don't ask our brains to remember the same things, which makes our memory robust. And then goes on to say, the neurological component of this is that the regions of our brain that we don't use and don't stimulate end up getting pruned off. Like mm -hmm. our brain, it's weird to even try and put into words, but essentially sort of self-corrects for the areas we use the most. Yeah, Those are the areas that, that fire at the the best capacity not nearly enough of a <laughs> brain scientist that's made this and so she goes on to say if we aren't asking the memory portions of our brains to work those portions will gradually lose their function and a common example of this is phone numbers so people used to know around 25 phone numbers off by heart they had them memorized but nowadays many people don't know any phone numbers at all and it's because we're so used to having that instant access. Yeah, and I loved that information when we were reading that because it is so true. And especially if you're 
of an age, I guess, what, Gen X? No. Yeah, Gen so... Gen Z, maybe my generation. So Gen X is just slightly older than you. Yeah. So when you've seen when you've seen both, you know what I mean? Like, when, when I was young, when I was 18 even, like, I knew everybody's number. I knew everybody's number. You know, you could go phone box or whatever you needed to do and like you'd know your parents numbers your grandparents numbers your friends and now I literally know my partner's number and my best friend's number I don't even know my mum's number I mean she changed the phone a couple of years ago so I'll give myself credit but still I don't know anyone's number my kids will not know anyone's phone number they just won't because it or why would they need to so exactly what she's saying those brain pathways are dying and like when they've We've tried to encourage over the last few years for you know older people to be learning more you know some of those computer games and apps that brain training mm-hmm. because we're recognizing that we're you know and, and is there is there a connection to that with alzheimer's and things like that con keeping your brain going it's exactly the same in in what you know that doctor's talking about we're not training the brain it's losing the functions and we're just adapting and 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 keeping that, that those brain elements alive that just do what we need them to do, the stuff that we do every day, which is bloody swipe right. phone and Google well, something. You know well, that's I mean? it. I guess to be clear, we are still picking up other skills, but you know, yeah. do we want to? Do we want to lose that? You know, I was brought up to remember two numbers: my mum's and my house number, because if you're ever lost or whatever, that would help you. Whereas now. Maybe there isn't a need for that. Maybe, Maybe. you know, if I got lost nowadays, my phone had died. You know, I'd I'd go and ask somebody and they would look it up on their phone. Yeah. They would just put it into Google Maps and give me directions. Yeah. And that just wasn't possible when I was younger. I know. So it's interesting, isn't it? Talking to whether you spoke now and went into, you know, a school of year 11s, 15 and 16 year olds and spoke to a load of 40 year olds. That's where maybe we miss the connection sometimes because they don't see the need they just there's not a need to learn how to read maps there's not a need to remember information it's all at your fingertips so I guess you know it's a challenge for schooling as well which we've known for the last 10 years like different types of learning and you know you put an assignment together even when I was studying you know it's just all online you just cut and pet you know what I mean but then maybe you know that's part of the innovation as well so maybe these younger generations will be better at using these tools to do really thorough research and so they don't need to remember as much yeah you know I don't need to remember like names of actors realistically you know but there's other things I I probably do and so I you know with my memory issues I hope I retain enough of it but it's all about how we we use it and try and I think in the episode we talk about trying to use it in a conscious way technology trying to find ways that are proactive and I actually got a really great tip from a past guest that you've reminded me of Cheddar Gorgeous because I was telling him I was really nervous about a podcasting event I was doing, I was speaking at, and I'd not done something quite like it before, and there was going to be a lot of delegates, and it was over Zoom. And, you know, I just had to log in at a set time and hope the technology worked. Mm. And, you know, I was talking about this, and he said, well, you know, if you get stuck, if at any point you kind of lose your place, you'll forget your words, you just pretend you're having an issue with Zoom. Because they'll all understand. So you just go there and just pretend to, like, tap on your keypad. And you could do that for five minutes. <laughs> and, and I love yeah. that kind of thing because it's yeah. true. You know, we've, we can look at the human side of how technology can, can be challenging for us. You know, it's important to acknowledge that. But there's also great ways as people we can take advantage of that. 
Yeah. And so if you want to pretend your Zoom's broken because you forgot what you were going to say, you can easily get away with that. Yeah, you can. It's true. So yeah, a lot, a lot to figure out. And so we're really delighted to have Dr. Juliansis on today, who is an expert in cyber psychology. So looking at the psychological models of our behavior and how they influence our relationship with technology. And so it's going to be quite different to the way we've looked particularly at social media in the past, you know, something that's such a big influence on mental health nowadays. But so often that is looked at as what is social media doing to us? And at times the the thing that's lacking is how are we interacting with the social media? Mm. What behaviours and psychological approaches that we have innate in us influence our relationship and some of our vulnerability to technology? And so that was really fascinating to get into that, you know, with our guest and, you know, go really deep into a lot of the things that are coming up for us in the pandemic and a lot of the things that technology is giving us, but also a lot of the things we're missing. You know, and you were telling me just before we started recording about your dad, you know, having to self-isolate and he's saying to you, I just want to be back on a train. Yeah. (laughs) Which I I just want to get out. Yeah. It was like, mate, drop me out. Like, I just need to get out of this place. I've been, he's had COVID um, and he's been really ill. But then, you know, he's been, like, he's like, I've been in bed for three weeks. I need, I've read 15 books. Get me out. I just want to get on a train. Get me out. Get me, get me somewhere. I need to come out. And I was like, I oh, know, Dad, I'm, I'm feeling you. Yeah, I'm sorry, but you've been going through this. And he's like, well, I'm, take it easy. I'm saying, take it easy. You're not fully well. But it's that interaction, you know, we're missing that. And I think, but when we were locked down and my, she was then nine, Year five daughter was on Zoom with her friends. Like we said, let's arrange a Zoom call. I'm stood outside the room listening. It was so awkward, bless them. Six girls, they're all nine. Someone might say hi, and then, but they're all a bit talking over each other. And then when it went quiet, they just didn't know what to say. And I guess, again, the behaviour would naturally be someone's got a toy to play with and then someone plaiting someone's hair or, you know, the way that they interact innocently and naturally in school, in the playground isn't this like let's sit down the six of us and have conversation and that's not because social media is taking that away because that would have been the same with me any generation but that age group you know it just goes to show that the face-to-face interaction works yeah well that's it it would be an issue anyway if you put them in in six perspex boxes and got them to communicate they'd have similar problems because they're used to the physical interaction And I think that's really important to acknowledge that technology is so often the tool by which we communicate, but it's not always the problem in itself. Absolutely. You know, there can be a lot of issues with our behaviour. And that's something that Natasha Devon speaks a lot on another past guest where she's really cautious about often being asked about cyberbullying in particular, mm-hmm. generally responds with saying, you know, we've got to be clear that bullying existed before. You know, social media did not create bullying. Yeah. It potentially made bullying easier and meant that bullying follows you home from the playground in a way that it, it didn't used to. And so, you know, with doing this episode, we're trying to be a part of that, you know, not pinning everything on social media, but looking at how we can all interact better. And we can all be vulnerable to technology, but we can also triumph. We can also find such skill in being good at it. Yeah. And having a good relationship with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is the energy to go into this episode with. Mm -hmm. So we're really delighted with the conversation. It's really in-depth. 
So we'll get into that interview with Dr. Julie Ansis in a moment, but first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. My name is Julie Ansis, and I could certainly relate to issues of mental health. People very close to me throughout my lifetime have struggled with profound traumas, either significant loss or abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, discrimination. And I've seen the effects of those traumas on psychological well-being, including anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicidal thoughts. And so I've seen the impact of profound traumas on people's lives and how they respond to that. And sometimes it, it does involve being abusive to others within their family. And so there are these really reverberating effects on families intergenerationally. And it takes a lot of work and self-awareness and intentionality to disrupt that family cycle. And with that kind of cycle that you saw in your family growing up, now you can speak about that with great empathy, but at the time, were you able to to see what was going on and why certain behaviour was taking place? Yeah, that's a great question. I certainly recall times when I was sort of this witness, like was just witnessing what was happening and its impact and really wanting to understand sort of the causes and the effects of of those kinds of dynamics. And that was very much the motivation for me to pursue psychology as a career. So just oftentimes taking this stance of sort of quote unquote, independent witness, like what's happening here? What's going on here? How could this be explained? And how could I potentially intervene to make it better, to make it better for those who are struggling, to make it better for me, so we could all thrive and not have these dynamics repeat themselves over and over again. Right. And that's a great, I think, mature and compassionate way of looking at it, you know, that these people are facing issues and these patterns can take place that affect people's lives in ways that often they don't even realise. You know, certainly for me, a lot of recognising patterns in my own family was via getting mental health support myself. And I think that's Mm -hmm. very much a situational problem, that you're growing up in a family and that is your beginning for experiencing the world. And so the fact that you were able to see something is wrong here is very powerful, whereas for many people, they can fall into the trap of mimicking unhealthy behaviours without even realising. Great point. I think it is true. Sort of those early caretakers are really your role models who teach you and educate you about how to deal with situations, experiences, and how to cope. And I feel fortunate to have been exposed to a variety of role models and some who you know, dealt with those traumas in more adaptive ways and others who dealt with their traumas in so-called maladaptive ways. And that that's so important, I think, for kids, especially to be exposed to models who engage in adaptive ways of coping with 
life difficulties. And do you feel you had that at the time? Did you have family members you could look up to who were coping and adapting better? Yes, I think I had a range. And quite honestly, sometimes those healthier role models came about for me as I got older. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in your immediate family or your family that serves as a healthy role model. Sometimes it could be someone who's just an acquaintance who is also a witness to what's happening, right? And makes a statement or gives you a word of encouragement that helps validate that experience and is incredibly healing. And so the person who's providing that kind of advice or validation may not even remember that they told you that made such a statement. I remember I was having a challenging situation when I was younger and I remember feeling down about it and I got into the elevator in my apartment building and I saw a woman who was older than me, more experienced, not not considerably older, more experienced than me. And she gave me just a sentence and that sentence sort of validated my experience. And it was so profound for me, it meant so much. And I remember running into her many, many years later, like 15 years later and saying, hey, you know, do you remember you said such and such to me in the elevator? It was so impactful. It was so profound. And she had absolutely no memory <laughs> of that. But for me, it was incredible. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. And may I know what the sentence was? I don't even really remember myself, but oh, it so was... Oh, so now you're the one that doesn't remember. Now I'm... <laughs> No, I remember the experience and it was it was how it made me feel that was most profound because it was a validation of a situation and a validation that the situation was dysfunctional or the person uh, was just the person in my life was dysfunctional and that had nothing to do with me. Essentially, that was very important message for me. Right, definitely, because it can be so easy, particularly as a young person, to blame yourself, to take other people's issues on as your own if you don't know better. And like you say, sometimes it can be just anybody, just anybody that can break through that. And you had what, to me at least, sounds like quite a New York experience of that person being someone in an elevator. Yeah, that is a New York experience, talking to strangers. But I did did know this woman from the building that I lived in. So she wasn't a stranger. So she knew the situation. And so I trusted her. But I do think you're right that many of us internalize so many messages that have nothing to do with us. That internalization of those sorts of harmful messages are really destructive. And it takes somebody else oftentimes to tell us, like, this is not you. This is the experience or this is the issue as relates to the other person. That's really powerful. And also that relates so much to the situations that can contribute to mental ill health, but also the mental illness in itself. We can have our Mm. own messages spiraling around our mind that can be self-deprecating and it can be so difficult to separate who we are and our potential from these messages going around in our minds. And so you're in the process of figuring all this out and getting a real appetite for psychology, which you then go into. And then I think a whole new element you were stumbling across was also how technology was shaping and influencing people's lives. So when did that element come into your work? 
Well, I think part of it is a, a natural part of being in the world and technological advances, the increased use of the cell phone, how we have such an intimate relationship now with our phones and seeing how communication has completely been transformed, right? So we're able to sort of galvanize other individuals and create sort of mass movements with a click of the button in many ways. The sort of traditional hierarchies of communication have completely flattened. Especially experiencing that transition because I'm old enough to have experienced a time when that wasn't the case. You know, I didn't grow up with a cell phone. And so life was very, very different then to now being the inaugural director of a cyber psychology program at the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark, New Jersey, which is extremely exciting and allows me to continue to sort of research the intersections of psychology and, and human beings uh, and their relationship with technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a fascinating field. If people are unfamiliar with cyber psychology, how would you describe it? Cyber psychology is essentially the study of the psychological processes underlying all aspects of technologically oriented behavior. So it has everything to do with human beings, including the impact of technology on psychological well-being. Brilliant. And I think it's so important and so fascinating to me personally, because I feel that one area of technology relating to mental health that's talked about a lot is when it comes to social media. But one of the limitations I see in the conversations is so often it's seen as a very cause and effect situation that we have social media and that is affecting our mental health in this way. But what I love mm. about your work is you're looking a step beyond that at how actually certain ways that humans interact and behave are part of why this is such a complicated and prevalent issue. Mm. That mm -hmm. social media, whilst it's new and having a big impact, it is a type of communication. And so many mm -hmm. of the issues that came around, like having very different views of the world, depending on which media you consume, that was existing before, but it was maybe via your newspaper as opposed to your whole internet looking different depending on maybe where you live or what sort of things you search for. Absolutely. You know, one important part of that is understanding the impact of sort of the, the digital footprints that we're leaving behind on social media through our likes, through our comments on Twitter, on Facebook, on a range of social media platforms, through our buying habits and our spending habits, through our Google searches. So these digital footprints say a lot about our behavior, say a lot about our preferences and our attitudes. And businesses uh, really rely on these digital footprints. And as a result, we are often fed information or content that's consistent with our pre-existing kind of preferences and our likes and our attitudes. And we are increasingly finding ourselves in echo chambers, right? Where we're not getting fed, if you will, kind of information that's different 
from our already existing attitudes. Right. I recently watched mm -hmm. The Social Dilemma, which is a Netflix mm -hmm. documentary that, that really delves into this and how we are becoming a product as consumers within a social media space because so much information is known about our likes, our interests, our browsing habits, you know, right down to even things like our routine, you know, what time of day are we on social media and could that be consistent with selling a certain product? And so all this data is being mined to sell us things, but also, like you say, algorithmically to mm -hmm. send us things that we're likely to interact with. And one of the ways that I've personally fallen foul to this on Facebook in particular is now it's not just the Facebook like, which I grew up with. Now you've got all the other reactions you can have to post. And what I found through the pandemic and spending more time on social media is that a lot of the things that I was reacting, not with likes, but instead maybe a, one of the little angry emojis or one of the sad emojis. And so I was getting a lot of Ooh. either frustrating or upsetting news creeping up and becoming more constant right yeah. in the middle of a mm -hmm. pandemic when that really mm -hmm. wasn't for my mm -hmm. mental health something yeah. I necessarily wanted an influx of. Yeah, well, especially considering that we're in a pandemic, which is provides this whole context to our experiences right now. And increasingly, sort of the information we're getting is not necessarily comforting information, right? It's, it's designed to push your emotional buttons because the content that pushes people's emotional buttons is the content that most people are more likely to engage with. They're more likely to sort of retweet or share that type of content. So that is not very helpful for human beings mental health right now let alone their critical thinking about the world right and one of the challenges i think is like we mentioned earlier with the idea of newspapers having their stances that people kind of buy into i think social media potentially brings that to another level in that it's bringing this so much more into our social environments so if we compare mm -hmm. for example you might read a newspaper and talk to a friend about the things you read, the headlines that were highly emotive or purposely inflammatory in order to get you to read, those weren't necessarily coming into the conversation, whereas now it is in, in such a more invasive way because you might be talking to a friend on social media and you've got all the news articles coming through on the same screen. And so I think yeah. it's brought that kind of highly emotive type of reporting right into conversations with friends and in mm. a way the places where we would go to switch off we'd go talk to a friend to unwind about a stressful day or some bad news that we've seen and now we're getting more of it right in that space right and to your point we're engaging with our friends using sort of the same medium and messaging so we're you know, tweeting, we're sending our friends like short abbreviated texts. We're not really necessarily picking up the phone and engaging in dialogue and conversations where there's a give and take. It's very abbreviated, short messages that we are now using to communicate with those we're most close with. So, you know, that has also changed the whole conversation. 
Um, and I think it's limited our ability to be presented with critical challenge, you know, as well as alternative information okay, or facts to confront some of the fake news, some of the disinformation, some of the mythology that we are increasingly exposed to online. That looks legitimate, but it's not. Right. And it can be so difficult to tell, you know, and I've seen even close yeah. friends of mine in good faith share things, particularly during the pandemic, where I see the name of the organisation it's come from and immediately yeah. know it's going to be suspicious. We can easily fall into this trap. And there's a whole world now of even beyond that organisations that are purposely fake news like The Onion is one that I follow. And so that's an organisation that makes made-up articles for satirical purposes. Like, there's no... Yeah. They're not attempting to hide the fact that it's not real. But yes. within the context of our sort of fast lives nowadays, you might just see the headline, not realise what The Onion is. And that, right. could, that could spark some misinformation there. And I'm spark protest. Anything. And I'm interested there in what you said about these kind of silos of information we can fall into and I think for me that really links with this concept of cognitive dissonance that can come up in psychology was explored heavily in the book for economics where people can be biased towards the information that confirms what they believe mm -hmm. and even within that can hold contradictory viewpoints but go to great mm. lengths within their own mind to not reconcile that because changing and realising that you were wrong about things, it's uncomfortable. And perhaps nowadays more than ever, it's easier not to. You know, if something challenges our viewpoint, maybe now we can unfollow it easier than, you know, in real life. You, if, if somebody says something we disagree with, we can't just decide, okay, that colleague no longer exists. But online, you can unfollow them. Yes, there's so much to, to what you just said. But we do tend to seek out information that is consistent with our pre-existing belief system, right? And ignore information that's contrary to our pre-existing belief system. Now, and then you have the ways in which we're communicating, which are through these short, short texts or short messaging, doesn't allow for a more engaged, informed type of discussion. You know, you also have sort of people responding to kind of Facebook messages in a way that becomes sort of a competition, right? Like a one-upmanship type of thing. Well, I'll show you how much smarter I am than you are. Let me Google something really fast, put some, put some statistics in there and make it seem scientific. We know that critical thinking, cultural exchanges that are healthy and helpful involve dialogue. There's no other way kind of around that. There are a lot of psychological processes in place when it comes to human beings that are really aggravating this increased polarization that we're seeing around the world. And Confirmation bias, as you mentioned, is certainly one of those psychological processes. I could say more about no, that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening away. No, you're making some great oh, points. Okay. And I think one of the things you mentioned there also is so key about the mentality of one-upmanship, that dealing with people online of opposing views becomes competitive 
in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like this race to be who can find a stat or a smart comment to make. And actually that not only is quite stressful because I've done it, I've been guilty of falling into these online arguments and I don't really think anybody comes away from it feeling better. I don't think there is really a victory because you can fall into this trap of trying to put somebody down and discredit somebody as opposed to building understanding. And I wonder how much you feel that is a symptom of the type of communication that maybe in person we'd be more inclined to try and come to a resolution and try and find some kind of similarity and I guess almost calmness and professionalism almost to an in-person conversation. Whereas when you're talking online to somebody who oftentimes can be a stranger who you wouldn't otherwise have access to, you don't know them. They may not even have a profile picture. If <laughs> I'm thinking of some of the people I've found myself disagree with online. <laughs> and so yeah. it's very easy to, I think, remove the human element of it and it become about winning the conversation. A hundred percent. There are a number of variables in, in play there, as you mentioned, with online communication that's very different from face-to-face communication. For one thing, there's a concept within cyber psychology known as the online disinhibition effect. And so we behave very differently online than we do face-to-face. The online format is oftentimes an anonymous format, as you mentioned. You don't even know who you're talking to. And you're more likely, as a result, to engage in certain self-disclosures or engage in, you know, quote-unquote bad behavior, right, than you would if you saw the person. You also have limited information about many human beings online, if you're even communicating with a human being and it's not a bot, because that's not easy to differentiate either. Am I really speaking to a bot? Um, that's part of a foreign influence campaign? Or am I talking to and communicating with somebody who's down the block? But we know that many bots have been created by foreign countries to influence, for example, the elections in the United States and to impact civil discourse and to increase polarization and really sort of disrupt And, you know, we see that happening where bipartisanship has become really exaggerated. So people are taking on very extreme views, whether you characterize those views as left-wing views or whether you characterize those views as right-wing views. But we see very little conversation that's in the middle. And that's also a function of not only bots and foreign influence campaigns, but it's also a function of social media and people's increasingly limited attention spans. So when I was growing up, I remember watching television shows where an interviewer would have somebody come on his or her show and engage in conversation and dialogue for an hour. The show was an hour and the show was just about that one particular topic in politics or philosophy, what have you. We're not really seeing that anymore. We're seeing more show business in a lot of our channels. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about then in terms of your work was you wrote a really interesting piece about 
social media and particularly this trap of disagreeing online with people and ways to either not engage with that or engage in a way that's that's less emotive and therefore may have less impact on your mental health. I was prompted to write that blog for Psychology Today where I have a cyber psychology page because I was seeing increasingly the increased polarization, the strong emotionality that was very negative, and an increase in people just dismissing others, longtime friends defriended and dismissed. And it gets back to the concept of this being sort of a one-upmanship sort of platform or encouraging a one-upmanship kind of platform, a dialogue, if you will, that's not even really a dialogue, but happens in a public forum. And oftentimes with very limited information about the other human being, we make all kinds of hypotheses about the other person's sensitivities, right? Or lack thereof. So I was seeing this on my social media feeds and also hearing from sort of friends and colleagues about how anxious and stressed they were in terms of dealing with sort of the back and forth in the commentary. And that prompted me to write a piece about that and think about kind of the way people engage in social media and the way I was engaging. Perhaps think about engaging in a pause, you know, in in meditation and meditative practices, they talk about pausing or hesitating before you react. So being very aware of sort of like the emotional responses that are often triggered on these social media platforms and how they then encourage us to just respond or react very quickly and oftentimes in ways that are not helpful. And thinking about kind of the purpose of our responses. What is the purpose? Is it to look smarter than the other person? Is it to let off some steam? Are there other ways of doing that? Or is it to really try to engage in some critical discussion, if you will, and attempt to educate another person for a greater good? No, I think that's important. And it's something where, in a way, I feel as people, we're somewhat set up to fail. Because if I think Mm -hmm. of a, a parallel, when you look at little kids and how they react to disappointment, they have to learn how to react appropriately. Mm. So let's say a really small kid, they're told they can't have an ice cream on the way back from school. It's quite common that they will sort of rage out. They will scream and shout, maybe run in a circle, and it will be very (laughs) dramatic and external. And obviously, as, as part of growing up and part of being parented, they learn when it is and isn't appropriate to react. And I feel like with the internet, because it's something that, so many people are growing up with now where young people are finding it to be such a big part of their life, but they're often being parented by people that did not grow up in that way. We're sort of missing that area of development. And so you learn out in what I would describe as the real world, you learn how to kind of keep a certain check on your emotions. Whereas maybe online, it's just too easy to react and not keep that Mm -hmm. in check. And it can feel like there's no obvious repercussion, because if you Mm. are rude to a stranger online, you don't Mm. see the other side of that. Whereas if you upset somebody in person, you can see that they're upset. Great point. I think you're right. And, And relatedly, 
there seems to be more caution, right, and care when we're in a face-to-face with somebody else as opposed to the internet where you could sort of hide behind a profile pic or there's this this anonymity of sorts, you know, and pre-social media platforms where you met people and you saw them as full human beings and maybe you realized, okay, you know, I don't necessarily agree with this person on such and such point, but there are other similarities that we have. There are likes that we have and we do agree on other points. And so you're able to see human beings in their fullness instead of as stereotypes. So that's another great concern I have. I think um, that's a really important one. And I think that actually I'd not thought of it in that way, but really speaks to the way our digital lives can be so political and so opinionated. Because if I think back to my own schooling experience, a lot of the things you talk to people about are the situations you find yourself in. You know, it's like that assembly was boring. That class felt like it went on forever. Or equally, the class you like went really quickly. You know, it's all these things that are not only shared, but they're also pretty mundane. And you know, online, we're not talking about that because we don't have the shared experience. What you rarely see online is people talking about, oh, what's it like on Facebook today? People seem angry. There's there's no discourse around the situation. The discourse <laughs> is all, what are our different opinions? And all of us kind of, yeah, speaking out into a void and, and saying what sticks, mm. that we are living so much more online, not just as the years go by, but now particularly in the pandemic. So many people not only are meeting people for the first time on social media, it's also, you know, maybe you start a new job and you don't see anybody except via Zoom for a few mm-hmm. months. And mm-hmm. and how do you see that influencing how we interact? That's a brilliant question and I, I think time will tell. But certainly uh, being on a, a college campus, for example, and talking about shared experiences, those shared experiences lead to a bonding with other human beings, right? They are the grounding of mutual trust and respect and understanding. And it's from there that we could have conversations that are more challenging and difficult because I know that, you know, you and I, for example, are in the same classes. We're having the same experiences. There are things that I like about you and there are things that you like about me. It makes it easier then for me to challenge you on something, right? And you to challenge me. And that's really important. So that's very much lacking to the extent to which we could bring back some old school, maybe, (laughs) communication. Not everything has to happen on Zoom. We could actually pick up a telephone. I mean, you could do that on Zoom and WebEx too, but there's a different dynamic that happens. Sort of another conversation, I think, about our tendency to see our reflection and see our image and, you know, focus very much on how we look. And when we do that, it's hard to completely connect with the other human being. So I would say an answer to your question, this is a long way around it, thinking very intentionally and consciously about our social media use and consciously about when that social media use becomes excessive and maladaptive 
and it's maladaptive when we are using it to sort of numb our really difficult feelings, when it's interfering with other aspects of our life, like our interpersonal life, our social life, our academics, our work, because we're spending an inordinate amount of time on it, and we're communicating in ways that are not healthy with each other, when we're having a hard time limiting or stopping our internet or social media use. And we need to be mindful, all of us, me included, right, about those signs of maladaptive use and very intentionally make conscious attempts at redirection, which often require limiting our use, not picking up the phone the first thing when we wake up in the morning, you know, or having that be the last thing we look at at night or when we wake up in the middle of the night, as many of us are doing increasingly now with this pandemic, it's really disrupting sleep, picking up our cell phone and looking at sort of our emails or social media, thinking about substituting some of that behavior with healthier behavior, whether that's taking a walk if you're not on lockdown, taking a walk with a mask during the pandemic, doing some yoga, doing some meditation, doing some drawing, journaling, dancing in your living room, whatever it is that releases endorphins and uh, makes you feel good and connected with the world are things that we should really consider implementing in a greater degree. For sure. And that's something I've really stuck to during the pandemic, actually, is making sure to walk every day. And a big part of that Mm -hmm. was recognising how my life was prior. That before all of this, I spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. rushing around to different cities around Mm -hmm. the UK for my work, often going and seeing friends a lot. And what we've lost at the moment is all that time in between. So so often when I was on a train, I would just be staring out the window daydreaming. And we need that time as well. And Mm, something that particularly as a creative person, we can feel in this time such pressure to be super productive. Like we don't have this time traveling between, I must fill it with more tasks. And what we can lose is that actually, you know, me daydreaming, on a train, on the way to meet a guest, is maybe some of the time when I think up my best questions for that guest. It's not necessarily dead time, but so often we can equate having a screen in front of us to productivity. And I'm trying to unlearn that not only in terms of still getting out for a walk every day and not losing that part of being active, but also just finding ways that not everything has to be on a screen like something Mm. I do is all my notes for the interviews are printed and not only is that useful because it means they're not on another device so I don't have another screen Mm -hmm, to watch mm -hmm. and make sure is charged and whatever else but also it's just a way to have a break you know when I need to read my research before an interview I print it out and then that's 10 minutes I'm looking at something I can highlight I can draw on it and I'm not doing 10 minutes more of screen. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing the same as well, just on a, in, a, in a physiological sense, the, the incredible eye strain that so many of us are experiencing as a result of being on the computer like we always have been. But, you know, the increase in emails and the Zoom meetings and the WebEx meetings and not every meeting necessarily calls for that type of venue. 
that downtime is so important in terms of the processing, the mental processing we need, the sort of slow thinking, the sort of digesting of information that enables productivity and creativity to really happen. That's where the innovation happens when we're able to sort of step back and think big thoughts, right? And digest large pieces of information. Definitely, because, you know, talking about technology as a theme, it can be so easy in our digital lives to look at ourselves almost like computers that we turn on and we run all day long and we work at maximum capability. And it's A, not possible, B, not safe. You know, it's not good for our mental health. I think it's really challenging. And this pandemic has made things even more challenging. So... You know, when the the pandemic started, I was really struck by this incredible anxiety that all of us were experiencing. We're still experiencing it, but it it looks different now. Anxiety around the virus, catching the virus, for those of us who believe in science and believe the virus is real, responding to people who were saying it's a hoax and there's still folks who, even though they're sick and in the hospitals, believe it's a hoax and don't understand why doctors and nurses are coming into their rooms with masks um, and protective gear. So I remember there was incredible anxiety around packages and groceries. And a lot of us, me included, were sterilizing our groceries and wiping them down with alcohol. And, you know, then there was a movement of to get back to the social media, a lot of things were online in ways that they weren't before. And so we were able to see sort of celebrities in their homes without makeup, not all dressed up, talking to us. And there was this like personal engagement that was like really exciting. Wow, you know, I could do yoga now live in my living room or dance with 50 people in my living room, whether I want to turn the screen on or off is <laughs> another story. And I think now we're seeing incredible fatigue, what they call COVID fatigue. Uh, It's becoming really wearing on people, not only for many people economically, which is, is very real, but psychologically, a wearing down of sorts. And like, if you're familiar with uh, Kubler-Ross, who, who spoke some time ago, or a long time ago, about stages of grief. I think we're seeing that and experiencing that, maybe not in the stages that she presented, but aspects of anger and the aspects of depression, aspects of denial. And I'm seeing it in the students. You know, students are really struggling and having a hard time. So many students who thought they were going to be out of the home, away from their parents in a college environment, now finding themselves stuck at home, taking classes remotely, trying to concentrate not being able to see their friends. And so I don't know if this is answering your question, but I'm, you know, we're no, seeing no, it a is, lot definitely. of and, and I think stress. even alongside all of that comes a technological fatigue as well, that we are living digitally so much. And, you know, there's, there's this, like you described, there's the eye strain, there's the physical impacts of sitting at a desk for so many hours a day. But I think it's also reminding us of a yearning to connect face-to-face again. You know, I'm hearing a lot of our listeners saying that they've never missed family like they do mm-hmm. now or their friends. And 
I think over time we've realised mm-hmm. I don't think really anything compares to that. It so doesn't. I think almost we're at a point now where the technology almost feels like, dare I say, a tease, feels slightly mm-hmm, taunting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. be really missing somebody and then see them on Zoom and then the Zoom freezes. And it just, <laughs> sometimes you miss them more than before you started. Or maybe that's me. No, yeah, I could certainly relate to that. I think we went from this excitement that, hey, you know, I could do Thanksgiving is a big holiday in the States, which is tomorrow here. I could, you know, it's usually a very family oriented kind of event. So we went from, wow, I could do these sorts of events on Zoom. How exciting. How cool is this? Why didn't I think of this before for family and friends that were at long distances to now experiencing exactly what you're you're saying in a way connecting with those platforms is putting us increasingly in touch with the fact that human beings have a need for you know, social connection, physical, present, face-to-face social connection. And it's just not the same online. Doesn't satisfy the same needs as does face-to-face. Right. And that's certainly one of my hopes going forward, that this will serve as a reminder of how much we should all value each other and we'll come Mm. in an upward swing, hopefully. You're looking a little bit Mm -hmm. less short. But, I, you know, I very much... uh, glass half full person and so I like to hope that the polarization and the loneliness and the isolation that people have felt in this time we will see almost a backlash to that and then people will want to reconnect and be social only on a recent episode Danielle and I were talking about missing crowds you know even things like the crowds of Christmas shoppers that on normal years would frustrate you now we're thinking you know what maybe I miss and the the sound Mm -hmm. of crowds of people even wow yeah I'm certainly experiencing that now being back in New York City which is where I grew up I think not been here for a while and seeing the relative quiet of the streets there's certainly no limited or no tourists And experiencing that, especially now around the time of the holidays, where there's usually the shopping, as you described it, and there's like a buzz in the air. It's very stimulating and in a positive way for people who've grown up in a big city. (laughs) Not so much for people who haven't. And I think it's kind of uniting as well in a way, you know, in these shared activities where we're all there the same purpose you know even if it's mm-hmm. frantically getting a Christmas present last minute we're all sort yeah. of striving for the same thing or you think of other environments like going to watch sports and there's the crowd and you're all in it for a shared outcome and you're all there for yeah. one thing and we're, we're missing that yeah. and I th- hope that this is a reminder that actually the strangers were really important all along Mm. that we did benefit from these crowds, that we did benefit from being part of an audience, from the audience, as well as just the people on stage. And, yeah, so that's certainly one of my hopes and maybe a way that perhaps there is going to be an organic cap on technology, maybe, that we realise that there's only so much we can live technologically before it's too much. I think you make a, a beautiful and, and good point. And or maybe there'll be technological advances which will look different and 
capitalize on the human need for connection and, and belonging. So maybe we'll have a, a full screen zoom or an ability to sort of, <laughs> not that I'm calling for this, but to interact in, in ways that are, are deeper from a technological perspective that also meet the human needs for connection. Yeah, I think that's really important, although I can't say uh, I necessarily <laughs> want more Zoom at this point in time. But no, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's always hologram. you know, there's holograms. <laughs> which provide that kind of no I mean it's 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 you know I'm sort of joking but I'm not joking you know we don't we can't really predict what the future is going to look like we could never I think or many people never have predicted this engagement of of a platform that allows for so much communication and connection without being together Right. And that is the other side of it. it. At the same time, it is quite incredible, even mm. though it can present such mental health challenges. I remember watching, I'm a big Apple nerd, and I remember watching mm-hmm. the press launch where Steve Jobs announced video calls on the iPhone. And he described it as being yeah. something that he'd grown up with, you know, looking at sci-fi movies and thinking, imagine one day you'll be mm. able to have a, you know, a video call with somebody whilst you're walking around, not even on Wi-Fi, you know, and it seems so radical at the time. Exactly. And now that is that is very much our lives. Yeah, and how great is that? But now, because of the pandemic, we're seeing it in extreme forms, as you mentioned, with meeting after meeting, an expectation that, so do we keep up the same pace or we do things faster? because we have these sort of devices and these mechanisms. And that's really outpacing sort of human capacity in many ways, because after all, we're still human beings, right? You're very right. So we will start (laughs) wrapping up there then. So if people want to learn more about you, your work, uh, I'm assuming a first place they could start is your blog with Psychology Today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one place if they're interested in reading about all things Cyber and uh, human, that would be one space, is the cyber psychology page on Psychology Today. I am also at, as I mentioned before, the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark, New Jersey, and and directing the new cyber psychology program, which is a brand new, innovative, exciting undergraduate degree program. So that's that's another place. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Julie Ansis, where I tweet about events. Also this semester, we had a cyber psychology seminar series open to people at NJIT, but also outside of NJIT. And I plan to continue that next semester with leading speakers who will speak to advances in cyber psychology. And so that will also be online if you look up it NJIT and, and, and find the Cyber Psychology Seminar Series. You'll find information there. So if people want to learn more about how we do cyber psychology in the United States, you could go there. Brilliant. Loads. So perhaps it feels a little bit ironic given some of the conversation we've had that we're recommending so many <laughs> online resources. Good but, point. <laughs> but that's, Good you point. know, that's the world we live in. And maybe you're listening to this whilst you're out on a walk or doing something that's a break from a screen, even if you're engaging in technology, I think that's certainly a compromise 
podcasting really provides. So maybe when you get home, you've got all these resources. And so I'll link some of those in the episode description. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.